Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up on the show, the North Brooklyn politician who recruited Julia Salazar to run for state senate. Julia has been put under a microscope to an unprecedented degree for a 27-year-old who has never held elective office. I mean, maybe if she were a Kennedy or something, she would get this amount of attention. And a criminal justice reporter to talk about a recent Intercept article on surveillance technology that lets police search for people by their skin color. There's an immense power that may not be given to authorities so easily if it were to be done in a public light with public oversight. Hi, welcome to the show. Soon we're going to chat with a Brooklyn district leader who was the first one to encourage Julia Salazar to enter the race for state senate. But right now we have on the phone one of the co-authors of a recent report in The Intercept about an uncovered collaboration between IBM and the NYPD to develop a so-called counterterrorism surveillance technology that critics worry could result in massive profiling. George Joseph, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell us briefly, what's this story about and why is it so incendiary? So the story is about a secret collaboration that took place between IBM and the NYPD between 2007 up until last year. And what we found is that the NYPD gave IBM access to surveillance footage from their cameras, which they have all across the city. And with that data, IBM, as a private company, was able to create their own surveillance product, which they shared with the NYPD, that enabled used sort of AI application allowing operators or police to search for people on camera, on their camera streams, using a few clicks based on various physical search parameters, such as someone's clothing color, their hair color, the darkness of their skin tone, that kind of thing. And so do you feel, and maybe this is uh, the answer is, is yes to both, but do you feel the story here is about the sharing of this data with a private company or about the potential racial profiling implications? I think it's about both. I think the two go hand in hand in that were there to be a more robust public input into the process of how our police department here in New York or across the country contracts with technology companies for surveillance products, there would likely be less ability to create these kind of technologies which enable what some would argue is automated racial profiling. And what I mean by that is with this tool, with a few clicks of a button, an operator can search through thousands of hours of camera footage that their surveillance cameras are capturing and pull up all images of people with dark skin tone, with certain facial or hair color. That's an immense power that may not be given to authorities so easily if it were to be done in a public light with public oversight. Just anticipating what the NYPD's devil's advocate argument would be is that in the old days, if you got mugged, something happened to you, you went to the police precinct, they let you look through books of pictures of people, and those were sorted by race, by whether someone had facial hair or not, whether they were male or female. In principle, is this technological approach that different? No. At the individual level, the approach isn't different than an officer recognizing someone by their clothing color and marking that kind of thing down. But what's different is the scale. Before, if that were to happen, it would be relatively isolated in that Maybe an officer would remember, oh, well, this guy was wearing a blue shirt, and I remember, sort of, I wrote down what he looked like. Let's check the suspect description against photos we have on file. 
But to then be able to, with this kind of product, look through archive footage going back as, as long as your policy allows you to and searching for over thousands of cameras instantaneously, it creates retroactive search capability and a live one if you want that far surpasses what authorities have been able to do in recent years. Now, on one level, that's just a simple increase in surveillance powers, which people may have differing opinions on. But even at the level of just fairness within the criminal justice system, defense attorneys argued to us that if prosecutors are able to, through the police, have access to this kind of tool to quickly find and call for people in their footage when they're looking for suspects, defense should have similar tools to ensure that there's equal standards at the criminal investigation level. And you mentioned thousands of cameras. I think that's a fascinating part of this, kind of the backstory to this, right, is there is this network of cameras that the NYPD began installing, I guess, after September 11th, 2001, and now it's a, it's a very large and, and pretty robust system. Right. It's, I think, tens of thousands of cameras at this point across the city, and in our reporting, we never claimed that all of these cameras were hooked up to this system, which is no longer being used as program. But it does show the potential for a law enforcement agency to do that if they so choose. I'm curious, the timing of this story, is it uh, meant to kind of align with the anniversary of September 11th? Uh, no, it was more just an editorial calendar thing. <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. So I'm curious, if this is a civil liberties violation or if it might be uh, discussed as such, is there any form of redress? Does the NYPD uh, subscribe to some authority on this? Is there a way to force more disclosure about this arrangement with IBM and the underlying technology involved? There have been bills that have been attempted at the city council level to to create a different sort of system in which the NYPD would have to disclose to city council what kind of stuff they were looking to procure and in some cases get some kind of approval mechanism on the civilian side of things. But those efforts have largely stalled in part due to opposition from the mayor's office as well as the police leadership who claim that the public disclosure of such information would help terrorist threats or enable terrorist threats. Um, so that's kind of where the, where the issue is now in terms of transparency. Well, George Joseph, co-author of Fascinating Story in the Intercept about a partnership around surveillance technology, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Have a good one. Coming up, our conversation with North Brooklyn District Leader Nick Rizzo. New York State is one of the most progressive states in the country, but it has erected a major impediment to voter turnout. It is the only state to hold two primaries, one for state offices and one for federal. The federal primary was in June. We're now about to have the state primaries. To make matters more confusing, it's on a Thursday, because Tuesday, the usual day we vote, is Rosh Hashanah. It goes without saying this can blunt some of the enthusiasm around voting. But if there was ever an election cycle to be enthusiastic about in state politics, this is it. And to break down some of the local races we have with us, North Brooklyn District Leader Nick Rizzo, a longtime resident, of the 18th district where Democratic Socialist Julia Salazar is trying to unseat incumbent Martin Delon, who was on the show last week. Rizzo was the first person to encourage Salazar to run for office. Nick, welcome to 112BK. First of all, for those who are not schooled, what the hell is a district leader? That's a great question, Jarrett. Every state assembly district in Brooklyn 
which is about 130,000 people. The Democrats in each district elect a male and a female, kind of like the Hunger Games. But instead of these 42 district leaders fighting to the death, instead we work productively to run the Brooklyn Democratic Party, which has been the main show in town in this borough for well over a century. So the Salazar campaign has been getting a lot of headlines really all summer, different tones, different storylines. Pull back. What is the story in that district? What do you think the story of this race is? I mean, I would say I've lived in the district for 10 years. Obviously, a major theme is concern about housing and displacement. It's one of the most rapidly gentrifying of all districts. But we've also seen for more than this last decade, for even longer than that, a political rivalry between Vito Lopez, Ridgewood Bushwick Senior Citizens Council, and uh, allies of Martin Delon um, on one side, and other community groups, and ultimately Congresswoman Nydia Velasquez and City Councilman Antonio Reynoso on the other side. So I fall more into the latter camp. This race does fit into that category as well, where, where Julia is trying to take the seat from someone who we feel has been too, maybe too old-fashioned in how he governs. Tell us about how she came to be a candidate and what your role in it was. How did you, when did you approach her and why did you approach her to run for this seat? Sure. Um, I knew that the Democratic Socialists of America, New York City chapter, was interested in running someone for something. And they were looking at various seats and they felt that the 18th district was a very good one for them. Do you know why? Yeah, there's a lot of members. There's over 600 dues-paying DSA members within the 18th state Senate district. So considering that, I was like, oh, well, Julia seems like a very good fit. She lives in the district. She's an organizer. And you knew her from? I knew her, I knew her from the organization. I knew her from within Democratic Socialists. I, would met her, I met her in, I would say, December 2016 and in about February 2018, February of this year, I asked her to run. She didn't say yes off the bat. I talked to a bunch of people who talked to her and those people convinced her that she would be the strongest candidate for this And that's, that's a pretty late date by which to start yes. a campaign, right? Yeah, I would say you really don't want to be starting a statewide cam- uh, a campaign for a seat as big as state Senate, which represents over 300,000 people much later than that. Yeah. So in the past several weeks, articles have emerged talking about uh, Salazar's backstory and how she did or did not present that. When you're talking to a candidate, someone who might be considering running, you obviously talk about their background, what might come up during a race. Did any of this stuff about her background as um, in college, she apparently was anti-abortion. She was a Republican. There was an arrest for which she was never charged. Did any of that come up? So the first two things you mentioned did come up. She was concerned about how those would be taken. And she stressed for me, for instance, that the right to life group that she was part of in college never supported abolishing or banning or making illegal abortion. More importantly for me was that where her position was now and had been for the last several years, all the years that I'd known her, which is 100% right on abortion and as a very left-wing Democrat. In terms of the arrest or that whole tawdry story, none of, none of that had been mentioned to me or to, to most of us because it was one of the most painful experiences of her life. And really the only reason we know about it is because a British tabloid dug up her barely successful defamation settlement. You know, she, she put a years of her life and a lot of money into trying to make the woman who had her arrested and said that she'd done these things pay and proved that it wasn't her who'd done those things. And there was ultimately a settlement of, I think, $20,000 in that right. case in, in Salazar's favor. For me, I've had 
friends who have been threatened with defamation lawsuits or whatever. I have a lot of journalist friends. I don't know anybody who has had to settle a defamation lawsuit where they told the truth. Truth is a defense for libel in America. So the fact that, that money was exchanged, all going to Julia's lawyer, to me suggests that Kai Hernandez's account was not real, that she did, in fact, defame Julia Salazar. Some of the questions have been about her personal biography, her uh, connection to the immigration issue, her economic status growing up. There has been some blame placed on enthusiastic young campaign volunteers. We can see that happening. Do you feel as though the candidate herself has always been accurate and truthful in describing her background? So I think the thing that I'd like to really point out is that there's a distinction between how politicians talk and how regular people talk. And people certainly have the impression that politicians are a lying bunch, and I'm not saying that's not true. But politicians were held to a much higher standard in terms of the accuracy of our words than a normal person. District leader doesn't pay, so my paying gig for most of the last four years has been a bartender. And one of the things that I've observed there, yeah, is that people's, ordinary people's standards for what they say and the truth value of that, how true that has to be, versus the truth standards for a politician who's shadowed by members of the media all the time, are very different. And I think that more than anything else, Julia didn't adjust fast enough. And that's, that's on her. It's also, I suppose, on a bunch of us in the campaign for, for not making that clear earlier. So I think there was some, clearly there was some inaccuracy. Most of the time, almost all the time, she said that she was born in Miami. She just went back and forth a lot. Between the ages of 9 and 17, 9 and 18, there were a lot of financially precarious situations in her life. And so that was what she was referring to in those statements. But I think... For a while now, she's been holding herself to a higher standard and that we're need, you know, that obviously going forward, every word needs to be strictly accurate. We realize that. So this is, raises an interesting question about what we expect of our candidates and, and, and whether it's about issues or whether the, the backstory, the bio that for centuries politicians have always kind of airbrushed and touched up a bit, whether those matter. When you were evaluating her as a potential candidate, did the backstory matter to you or was it just about her position on, on issues? For me, her, her success as an organizer and the fact that we had a dynamic and fast-growing organization that was excited about her, plus a bunch of potential allies, but mostly these issues that we were really excited about, our ideas about housing and health care and immigration and a bunch of other issues. And frankly, throughout the campaign, people have responded to those issues incredibly well, which is why Julia's opponent, Senator DeLon, spends all of his time attacking her on the personal stuff. So given what we've been talking about, is, are these stories percolating into the district? And how do you feel in general about her chances come Thursday? I still feel pretty good. I would feel better, again, if more of our time were focused on said issues instead of all these other stuff. I do feel that the district wants a change, that generally the Democratic Party recognizes that we need to get younger, more female, less white in terms of our leadership. So I think Julia represents one of those, uh, an opportunity for that, that, that the, the district will seize, especially because they're excited about getting some change. We've had the same person representing us for 16 years, and we haven't felt that the change has happened. 
as you mentioned at the top, housing issues are a big part of the critique of Delon and his record accepting donations and his record on tenant issues. Housing has also come up a lot in the Jesse Hamilton's Zellner Myrie race. Talk about that one for us. How do you feel about that? Sure. Martin Delon has been close to the IDC, has received money from real estate like the IDC did and from other backers of the IDC, but he was never in the IDC. Jesse Hamilton was in the IDC, and that meant taking- I'm sorry, just an independent democratic Independent democratic conference, which is a group of several senators elected as Democrats who caucused independently from the Democratic caucus and have now rejoined the Democratic caucus. Jesse is the the only IDC senator from Brooklyn whose district is entirely within Brooklyn. And so Zellner Myrie, who is a young attorney from, from the district, from greater Flatbush, I would say, He's, he's challenging uh, Senator Hamilton on whether he was able to really defend the interests of this district, which is what Senator Hamilton says he was doing when he left the Democratic Party. We'll have Zellner Myrie on the show tomorrow, I oh, should great. note. And I'm curious, do you think, you know, you have the DeLon Salazar race, we have Hamilton Myrie, there's also the Democratic primary for the Marty Golden state Senate mm-hmm. seat, Angie Gennardis and Ross Barkin. Do you feel those super local races are generating more interest than Cynthia Nixon, Andrew Cuomo? What do you think is causing, if, if any, buzz? So the top of the ticket is always very important. I call it the marquee race. It tends to be what most of the media focuses on and what most people think about. So when people go in to vote on election day, they normally have their minds made up over who they're voting for, for say governor or mayor or president. And who they're voting for for judge or district leader is less clear. I think the Senate races are somewhere in the middle. So I do think that that more people are paying attention to governor or lieutenant governor or attorney general, but I feel like all three of those state Senate races that you named have very high salience within their district. Yeah, people do really care. You know, a lot has been said this year about the blue wave or this uh, movement within the Democratic Party to shift the party left. And the question of whether these races will be some sort of a referendum on that. You know, we saw Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez in the spring win, and that set up these other races. What do you think it will say if Salazar should should not succeed, if Jumani Williams and Cynthia Nixon and, say, Zephyr Teachout all, all lose. Will that suggest that this wave was not a real thing? No, I don't believe that. First off, the first benchmark is not, frankly, win or lose, unfortunately, in the Democratic primary right now. To see if the left of the Democratic Party is strengthening or weakening, we should compare, roughly, Cynthia's showing this time to Zephyr Teachout showing against Andrew Cuomo four years ago, where she got about 33% of the vote. So. The conventional wisdom that I'm hearing is anything above 40% would be a moral victory for Cynthia Nixon. We'll see. After all these elections this year where the the polls have been dead wrong about what happened, I'm not making any firm predictions. I think if all the former IDC senators hold on, or almost all of them, and the sort of more establishment candidate wins statewide, yeah, then then you can say that the blue wave has has sort of crested outside of New York State. You tweeted uh, in either earlier today or recent days about Salazar's candidacy, these questions about her backstory, and the question about real people versus professional politicians running. I'm curious, if you're a real person out there looking at this race, worried what politics would do to you, do you think it would discourage you? What would you say to someone who is thinking, uh, this means I, I don't want to get into it because my backstory is complicated too. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any way you can read this race and not think that. That 
going forward, we're going to have to be very clear about all of our personal stuff and all of, all of our potential problems. Anybody who's running as a candidate. But yeah, Julia has been put under a microscope to an unprecedented degree for a 27-year-old who has never held elective office. I mean, maybe if she were a Kennedy or something, she would get this amount of attention. But really, it's, it's due to a confluence of several factors, one of which is media missed out on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and wanted to find someone who kind of fit the bill that they wouldn't miss this time. So that caused some of her hype. Also, the amount of field effort put into this campaign, the, the, the volunteer muscle is, I've been doing local campaigns for 18 years, and I've never seen anything like this uh, Julius Salazar State Senate campaign for that. So that makes it kind of an interesting story, too. But once that happens, then there's a, a natural desire on the part of the media to check for any sort of hypocrisy, to tear down anyone who we've raised up over the last six weeks, to do uh, whatever is necessary to feed the backlash part of the hype backlash cycle. And, you know, Julia has a different and more critical position on Israel than almost any New York politician. So now there's a very organized interest group that is funding at least one magazine that has done the strongest investigative research against Julia Salazar of anyone. And we have a lot of real estate interests and hedge fund interests that are pro-charter dumping an enormous amount of money into Martine Delon's campaign. It's not clear where it's going but he has hired more than one communications professional who presumably are also practiced in the dark arts against her, right? This was an idealistic 27-year-old, beloved by her friends and comrades, who went into this race, and if she loses, she will be blamed personally because he didn't spend any of his time attacking her issues, our issues, our campaign. Almost all of the senator's campaign has been against her personally. If we lose, and I'm not sure whether we will win or lose on Thursday, but if we lose, I, I fear that it will feel like a personal failing. We'll have to look for the result on Thursday. Nick Rizzo, district leader, thanks so much for joining us. Indeed. Thank you. And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. Local politicians are out in force, despite the rain that Hurricane Florence is starting to send our way. Primaries are on Thursday, as we mentioned, and candidates are making the last push to reach voters. Brooklyner has a handy list of who's endorsing whom on their site. And an exclusive, Brooklyn Center for the Performing Arts has closed abruptly after 64 years serving the community. Last Wednesday, September 5th, the college closed the doors of BCBC Brooklyn College Presents, formerly Brooklyn Center for the Performing Arts, and laid off most of the full-time employees, citing budgetary reasons. At what's being called K2 Corner, where Myrtle crosses Broadway and Bed-Stuy meets Bushwick, there's been another reported mass overdose on K2, the synthetic pot that is pretty much poison. This time, five men were taken to the hospital after being found slumped on the streets and lying on the ground. Another pot-related story, Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez is going to begin this month vacating some lesser marijuana-related convictions. Those who qualify have their first opportunity to file a motion the weekend of September 21st to 22nd at Lenox Road Baptist Church, 1356 Nostrand Avenue in Prospect Leopards Gardens. Defense attorneys will be on hand to help fill out and file paperwork. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at bklyner.com. That's the show for today. 
please join me again tomorrow when I interview up-and-comer Zellner Myrie, challenger to Jesse Hamilton's state senate seat. See you then. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford, but she's off getting married. So right now it's hosted by me, Jarrett Murphy. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle, and also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Emily Boghossian, and Naeem Van. It's directed by Clinton Filson Jr. and recorded by Eric Haugaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Edited by Mira Arahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.